Well, good morning again, church family. I cannot believe how odd it is to preach in a setting like this, but uh, I do find great comfort in the fact that uh, I'm not alone. Uh, Many pastors are uh, struggling with this uh, new way of addressing uh, their people. Uh, so I, I find comfort in that because oftentimes I just feel a little bit foolish. So uh, if you are in the habit of watching a lot of videos of uh, a spoken word, uh, just know it's, uh, it's really, really difficult. Uh, but I find comfort in the fact that the church is presenting um, uh, a lot of sloppy ways of doing this, and I'm, and I'm right there. It's, uh, it's really an awkward thing. But very, very glad I have an opportunity to uh, talk to you about God's Word. It is Palm Sunday, and uh, we uh, want to uh, learn more about the ramifications of Jesus entering uh, Jerusalem. Now, uh, little theologians, I'm going to ask you to, to draw something that's pretty pretty obvious. I mean, we think palm branches, and uh, ordinarily here at Covenant, uh, you, would, you would be actually bringing uh, palm branches into, uh, into the church. Now, in John's Gospel, that's where we get that that phrase of uh, palm branches or palm uh, leaves. Uh, John's Gospel says that all of the people, as Jesus was coming into the city, uh, laid out uh, palms. Uh, But Mark says, uh, he doesn't use the word for palm, he says leafy branches. And then here in uh, Matthew, we have uh, branches from trees. So uh, I think that there are a lot of different things that you can be drawing, but why don't you just think about this? If Jesus were to come into our city, and he's coming as a king, and uh, something would be laid on the ground uh, to mark Jesus's entry, what kind of vegetation uh, would you grab? Uh, what kinds of leaves? Let's just draw a picture of uh, foliage that you would grab and lay on the ground uh, for a king to walk upon. Well, uh, this morning, as we look at this uh, passage from uh, Matthew uh, 21, I want to remind you that uh, this is the very day when Jesus would come into that city of Jerusalem. And there are some realities in this scene that, uh, that Jesus is very clear that he wants us to notice. Now, he doesn't answer all of those realities exactly the way we'd like, uh, but these are things that we must notice if we believe Holy Scripture is true. So uh, our passage this morning is from uh, Matthew 21. It's uh, verses uh, 7 through uh, 11. Uh, Let me uh, pray first, and then we'll read this passage. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for speaking to us by your word. We ask that you would help us to understand your word, to hear your word. We thank you very much that as we are uh, alerted to your word, uh, we're also alerted to our need for that word. And so we pray, Father, that in this passage that is a passage from uh, history, uh, that it would be a passage that we uh, actually uh, are able to apply by your spirit uh, to our lives uh, here uh, today. Thank you for speaking this word to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Let me real quick uh, get a Bible so that I can actually read with you. So our passage is from Matthew 21, verses 7 through 11. Listen to God's word. Uh, They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. And most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. 
And the crowds that went before him and and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Well, this is the word of our Lord. Yeah, I want us to, uh, as we look at this passage, it's so familiar, uh, I want us to think about this passage in a way similar to how we might think of assembling a puzzle. So uh, uh, Sinclair Ferguson gave a talk on uh, Romans in which he said that uh, sometimes when we understand the Bible, uh, as uh, Presbyterians in particular, we understand the Bible uh, very, at a very, very technical level level. We understand uh, the intricacies uh, verse by verse or word by word, and what we tend to miss is actually stepping back from Scripture and, and noticing the edge pieces of the puzzle, so says Sinclair Ferguson. The edge pieces are the pieces, pieces that kind of guide us to know, uh, know about everything else, where everything else is situated. And this morning, I'd like for us to look at the edge pieces of Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. And we know that this particular scene caused a great deal of confusion. And so uh, as you look at this scene, maybe you're confused by it and having a hard time putting the pieces together. But we're going to look at the edge pieces because really this scene, uh, John tells us, was confusing when it unfolded. We know that it's confusing because John tells us in John 12, 16, his disciples, his disciples, the ones closest to him, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. And so if the disciples needed that help when they saw the edge pieces, we're going to need that help as well. But I want us to to look at what those edge pieces are, and I want us to ask if this tells us who this is. The triumphal entry, I believe, does tell us who Jesus is. I want to first talk about the pieces in the center, kind of the scene or the setting. And then I want to talk about those pieces on the edge. And at the very end this morning, uh, I want us to uh, wonder how it is that uh, this, the edges to this pieces actually make sense of who Jesus is. Now, the pieces in the center. I just want us to understand a couple of things about this scene. The first is this, is that uh, the crowds in the city were immense and confused. Uh, They're uh, they're immense. I mean, Jerusalem during the Passover was just crazy. It was a frenzy of people. The the normal population of Jerusalem would have been around 30,000 people. But scholars tell us that that number would have tripled during the week of Passover, uh, tripled or more. And so think, it could be 100,000 people. I've actually read a scholar who said there could have been 200,000 people in the city of Jerusalem, a city that normally is home to just 30,000 people. What that means is that uh, every uh, guest house, every hotel, every Airbnb, every campground is completely full in the city, but also in the suburbs Bethany, where Jesus is staying, is in the suburbs. But everything would have been occupied. And not only that, uh, there wouldn't be a single business in the city that would be operating uh, normally. 
The crowd is huge. Jerusalem uh, is populated with a massive frenzy. But there's also another aspect of that crowd. Remember, we want to talk about the, the crowd, but we want to talk about the intensity or the tension in that crowd. But another aspect of the crowd, it's not the majority of the people, to be sure. It's a, it's a minority and, and perhaps a very, very small minority of people. Those people who were uh, more or less in the know about Jesus. They're not just frenzied members of the crowd. Uh, these are people who actually know a thing or two about Jesus. And certainly we would have to uh, count the 12 disciples uh, and their family. And we count Jesus. We have, you know, there's, there's uh, 13 to 20 people or so. Um, there would be various families that were uh, traveling with Jesus, supporting uh, he and his disciples along the way. Uh, we don't know exactly uh, how many people that was, uh, 40 people, 50 people. There'd be uh, friends and family of uh, Mary and Martha. Remember, uh, when Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead, there was a large crowd that was there. Initially, they were mourning the death of Lazarus. Lazarus, They're there to support Mary and Martha. But that crowd actually uh, grew as uh, Jesus performed that uh, sign of uh, raising him from the dead. So we have that crowd. And, and again, uh, we don't know how many people... That, that was, maybe uh, 100, 100 folks or so. And then we have the Jewish leadership, which is actually very interesting. Uh, there was uh, a couple of different minorities among those who were Jewish leaders. Uh, one minority wanted to kill Jesus, arrest him and kill him. Uh, the Bible is clear about that. But there was another minority that was curious about Jesus, and the Bible is clear about that as well. There were some religious leaders who actually were becoming followers of Jesus Christ. But, but all said, we have the massive crowd of Jerusalem. We have this small body of people, people who are in the know about Jesus uh, to a variety of degrees. And that body is probably a thousand folks or less. Let me just think about that. This small little crowd of a thousand people coming into a city of 100,000, uh, possibly even 200,000. And so there's a massive crowd in the city of Jerusalem, but there's also a great deal of tension in Jerusalem. And that tension is uh, apparent in verse 11. Uh, we read that Jesus was the, uh, the kind of man who uh, was drawing... Uh, I'm sorry, that's not verse 11. Uh, the, the passage tells us that, that Jesus actually uh, is the kind of person who is causing a great deal of... Uh, 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 stirring in the city. The, 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 chitty, the city is actually stirring wildly. Uh, we know that uh, the, the city would already be stirring wildly because the, because the Romans were actually very concerned about the Passover week. The Romans are just trying to control everything. But the Jews are, are intensified as well. That's the verse 11 passage because we're told that Jesus is from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, that may not be significant to you, but because Jesus is from Galilee, the Jews had certain expectations from him. He's one of us. Here we are on Passover, and whoever this figure is, he is a Galilean. I mean, that's a salt-of-the-earth Jew. There was a rabbinic saying that uh, in this night of uh, the uh, Passover, we were delivered, and in this night we will be delivered. The Romans are frenzied because uh, things could easily get out of hand. And the Jews are frenzied uh, because they have huge expectations anyhow. But notice this also. 
Jesus being from Galilee is very significant. You know, uh, Judea was run by Rome. And Judea uh, had no independence at all. Its, its authority was actually Roman authority, but not true for Galilee. Galilee was ruled by a, a quasi-Jew, a Herod ruled in Galilee. So when Jesus uh, comes from uh, Galilee, um, it just would intensify uh, what the Romans are thinking about this particular week. So the crowd and the tension, all of this intersects at verse 10 of our passage. That's the passage we need to look at. That, that crowd and that intensity actually centers in verse 10. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. That word for stirred up is where we get our word for seismic. The, the word was, the, the, the whole city was stirred up because people were saying, who is this? Now, I think all of those details are actually really important. Those are kind of the centerpieces of the puzzle. But look what the Holy Spirit teaches us about Jesus, how, how Jesus is framed by those pieces on the edge of the puzzle to help us to discern exactly what's being asked in verse 10. Who is this? Well, who is this? I'm going to say four things, four edges of who Jesus is. The first is this. Jesus, he is God's king. Jesus is God's king. Look at the passage that, that Matthew uh, cites, Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, Zechariah had promised that when all of God's enemies had been defeated, uh, the Philistines and uh, Tyre and Sidon, when all of those enemies had been uh, dealt with, God's king would arrive. And some, of the, some in the crowd, they get this kingship image. And, and, and we see that because they're, they're spreading their cloaks on the ground. They're, they're spreading branches on the ground. This king is that final king to some in Jerusalem. They're a, they're a big minority, no doubt. But some, they see that Jesus is God's king. That God's king, uh, he would be the righteous king, God's only perfect king. And that he would be the king carrying salvation. He would be the salvific king. Jesus, he is God's king. But the second edge is this. Jesus is God's salvation. Now, I want to spend some time here, but listen to what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that God needs salvation, but Jesus is God's salvation in that he is God's plan for salvation, God's only means of salvation. As Psalm 98 verse 2 says, the Lord has made known his salvation. John the Baptist quotes that. The Lord has made known his salvation. And we're commanded to sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. And, and Jesus, he is God's salvation. This is how God saves his people. And Jesus is deliberate about coming in a very specific way. He comes peacefully. Jesus, he is placed on a colt with the, with the mother in attendance. Probably the, the, the mother of that colt is, is there uh, to calm the colt. This animal had not been ridden before. But this is an animal of peace. 
Uh, You might recall that King David, after uh, defeating all of his enemies, uh, King David happens well before Zechariah is writing, but King David, after defeating all of his enemies, Philistia, Tyre, Sidon, all the places that are actually mentioned in Zechariah, what does David do? David actually places his son on his own mule, an animal of peace. But then go back to that passage from Zechariah 9 and look at the next two verses. Zechariah 9, verses 10 through 11. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Boy, look at what Zechariah is talking about when Zechariah says that the king comes. Not only is this God's king, this is God's salvation. This is the means by which uh, peace actually comes to uh, the nation, but peace comes to us individually. And when you look at Zechariah 9 verse 11, you see this reference to the blood of the covenant. In Zechariah's mind, the coming of the king and the peace that the king would bring actually foreshadows the death of the king on the cross, the blood of the covenant. And uh, there are other passages that we could look at. I want to reference real quickly Genesis 49, verses 10 and 11. Do you remember at the end of Jacob's life that he uh, blesses uh, his sons one by one? It's very interesting that when Jacob blesses Judah... He says this, he says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. Well, that's a reference to a ruling king. Jacob goes on, And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. Isn't that interesting as well? Jesus, Jesus comes on a donkey. And here we have this reference in Genesis 49. But then look, look, how, look what else Jacob says as he blesses Judah. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Now this should be really stunning to us. That over the millennia, we can look back in the Old Testament, we can see that the, the king of God was, association, uh, with, was associated with the bringing of God's salvation to his people. But then real quickly, and then we'll move on. I mean, it's obvious, isn't it, in verse 9. You know, these are words that are sung to uh, not merely a king, but to someone who can bring salvation. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Twice that word Hosanna shows up. Now, to be sure, Psalm 118 was very familiar for Jewish festivals. And, and also to be sure, uh, singing doesn't always mean understanding. But that word, Hosanna, is an attempt to translate a, a Hebrew word, a word that really works best in the Hebrew, doesn't work very well in the Greek. Save us, we pray. And it's not a cry of desperation. It's actually an assertion of a promise that God has made. It's a praise that salvation has come. And how has salvation come? Hosanna to the son of David. It's not just a generic salvation, wishful thinking that things will be better. It's salvation that's attached to the son of David. 
So uh, uh, Jesus, he is God's king, but Jesus is God's salvation. Uh, there's two more edges to this puzzle. Jesus is God's prophet. And the passage ends in verse 11. This is the prophet, Jesus. Now, in our passage, uh, Jesus has actually said uh, nothing. And in fact, for the triumphal entry, Jesus doesn't speak at all. But he actually puts this passage in motion with the instructions to his disciples in advance. Everything that Jesus said has come to pass for this event. Everyone who is witnessing this scene ought to be leaning towards Jesus, waiting for what? Waiting for him to speak. Here, in a scene in which Jesus is not speaking, what is he called? The great prophet. Everyone should be tilted forward, listening. What is this Jesus going to say? Now, the great expectation for that is what Pastor Molinax read earlier in the service, Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, and it is to him you shall listen. So this prophet who is laying out these edge pieces for us, this prophet we can already anticipate, will explain what those edge pieces mean. It's Palm Sunday, and we've just looked at these these three uh, edges of this particular scene. I want to already right now encourage you to to come Sunday and and to listen to how the prophet explains these uh, edges of the puzzle. The prophet will speak. So Jesus is God's king, he's God's salvation, but he's also God's man. Now this is a statement of historic and scientific truth. God, he actually enters into time and space. And we could say that there's a massive crowd here and this crowd is filled with tension, but but God actually interrupts that crowd, interrupts that tension. God actually comes into time and space. And this is a really a statement about uh, the, the, the true incarnation of Jesus, physically present. He comes, he is here. We know in Scripture that, that Jesus is a man, is the very center of God's affection, that Jesus delights in his son, loves his son. But it's also a picture of God's love for us. How does he love us? By sending his son, by coming to us as the God-man. There's a little bit of an an analogy here. Uh, During this scene, Jesus, a great figure, is coming. And some in the crowd uh, notice that he is a person of significance for some, some kind of reason. Who knows? But we are told in this passage that he comes from Galilee. And during this scene, when this was actually happening, if you were from Galilee, don't you think you take some pride in that? I don't know who he is, but I hear he's from Galilee. If he's from Galilee, he's an okay guy. And we do this. People who are from our hometown, we we follow the trajectory of their lives. And when someone from our hometown does something big, we feel like, whoa, (laughs) I've done something big, too. I'm from, I'm from that city. You ever heard of so-and-so? Yeah, I'm, I'm actually from that city. Now, none of us are, are Galileans. But were we there, uh, we would have uh, held up our Galilean status because he himself is from Galilee. And it would matter to you if you were from Galilee. But this passage should matter to you because you are a person. You're a person. 
And Jesus is a person. And Jesus has come as a person to do something. And is it possible that the doing of that person has something to do with you as a person? He looks like you, walks like you, experiences life like you. This is more than him being a Galilean. He's a person. Now, as God uh, comes uh, in the man of Jesus Christ, God is doing something quite extraordinary. Remember, uh, Jesus is God's man, but what God is doing in, in the incarnation is that God is subjecting himself to misunderstanding. And Jesus comes as a man, and he speaks, and he breathes, and, and, and as he does so, he is heard like any other man. Uh, but that also means that he's scrutinized by the world like any other man. God was actually pleased to place his son in a position of foolishness to the world. That the world would recognize him as a man, but then chastise him as a man. Doubt him as a man. Disbelieve him as a man. Test and challenge him as a man. Demean him as a man. But God did this. God actually came as a person. No other God has done this. And if he's God's man, with God as his affectionate father, perhaps because I'm a man, hmm, perhaps I could be a man of God as well. Perhaps I could have God as my father too. Perhaps I could be adopted into that special relationship and also be someone who belongs to God. Well, Jesus is God's king, Jesus is God's salvation, Jesus is God's prophet, and Jesus is God's man. Now, the crowd gathers, and the crowd begins to uh, boil in anticipation. A tense tension, which was already there, tension begins to build uh, on this Passover, uh, unlike any other Passover before. And the intersection is right at Jesus in verse 10. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? is this? Now, I want to ask us to consider that this is a picture actually of our own setting. Large body of people uh, around the world, huge in numbers. Many of them know something about Christianity. And what do they think about Christianity? What kinds of decisions have they made uh, about uh, Jesus and his followers? And all of these people around the globe, they have a variety of views with regards to who this Jesus is. Now, some of them believe in Jesus and are followers of Jesus. But in terms of global population, that's a small body of people. And this body of people, Jesus calls his people, the church. And we might think of the church being this small minority in this large world that is pondering who is this, but not just pondering, actually answering the question already. Who is this? It's someone to be ignored. It's someone who's inferior. It's someone who's not worth my attention. It's someone who is a fraud. Who is this? We need to expect that the world is confused by who Jesus is. And the reason we need to expect that the world is confused about who Jesus is is because on some level, without being Roman, without being Jewish, on some level, they are marked with the feeling that all is not right in the world. Christians really believe that every human being 
has a suspicion that not all is right in the world. There's injustice, there's death, there's sickness, there's crying. Things are not right. Christians also believe that everyone in the world not only senses that things are not right, but everyone in the world actually has a desire to worship. And it's a powerful desire, and desire is most naturally felt in a desire to worship self rather than worship Jesus. In fact, it's to worship self or anything else rather than worship Jesus. But that sense of the divine, as John Calvin calls it, is present in every member of this global community. And, and not only is there a sense that stuff is not right and there's a sense of, uh, of worship, but everyone in the world wants to know how to have peace in this life and the life to come. Everyone in the world wants to know how to have peace in this life. Now, that word peace may not be used. Maybe the word is happiness instead. How to have a sense of happiness and calm about this life. And, and what's going to happen uh, after this life? Uh, people don't have answers for that. What will happen? Christianity has an answer. Now, believers, through the resurrected glory of Jesus, remember, that's what the disciples needed in order to understand how these edge pieces and the center pieces actually work together. Believers, through the resurrected glory of Jesus, they actually have a message. And we can be very confident about that message. Jesus, he's God's king, and he's God's salvation, and he's God's prophet, and he's God's man. But we also need to be very clear as we, uh, as we talk about Jesus because if we only say that Jesus is God's king, then oftentimes what happens is we make Jesus the focal point for some kind of political uh, uprising or we make Jesus look like merely a strict ruler who just uh, as a king comes to give rules. And if we only talk about Jesus as God's salvation, uh, oftentimes we, uh, we are talking about Jesus as if he is somehow disembodied and that, that uh, my salvation is a hyper-spiritualized salvation that exists only deep inside of me. Uh, I understand it in such a deep personal way that it can't be communicated. It's uh, disembodied. It's outside of physical communication. That's if we only talk about uh, God or Jesus as God's salvation. And if we only talk about Jesus as God's prophet, then we're only talking about Jesus as if he, are, if he is the wisest of all wise teachers. That he's wiser than any other teacher that walked the face of the earth. And if we only talk about Jesus as uh, God's man, well, then he ends up being a, a role model. A role model who serves as an example to us without the possibility of bringing us into adoption ourselves that we too might call God our father. And so, as Christians, speaking to a large world, a big crowd of people that is, that is uh, frenzied about who he is, who Jesus is, we have to say all of these things. He's God's king, God's salvation, he's God's prophet, and he's God's man. But we also need to be very sensitive as Christians. Remember again, the disciples, they needed to be taught by the resurrected, glorified Jesus they needed to hear Jesus tell about his own story connected in the Old Testament. They need to understand that the very maker of the cosmos is uh, who Jesus himself is. They needed the words of Scripture. They, they needed that life in the church of hearing that word preached, but also participating in that spiritual fellowship that the church has. They needed to come to the church's table to commemorate uh, the death of Jesus and the new life that they have in him.
The church needs that. And I want to finish with this. Is we, we actually do, as a congregation at Covenant Presbyterian Church, we actually do believe that the world is crying out to know who Jesus is. And that comes out in strange ways, in offens- offensive ways, hurtful ways sometimes. But we believe that the world needs to hear who Jesus is. But that's not just what Covenant Pres believes. That's what Christians believe. And, and here you are, you're, you're listening to this. And uh, from my perspective, you're the, the church body of Covenant Presbyterian, but also you're, you're a, a digital audience uh, made up of people whom uh, I don't know, whom I've never met, and you've never met me. But you need to hear that resounding message, who Jesus is. Now, all of this makes sense. The edge pieces and the center pieces all get lined up at the resurrection. And I want to encourage you to be with us next week. Next week's Easter Sunday. We're commemorating today uh, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem and setting out those edge pieces of who he is. But please be with us on Sunday to learn who he is as the resurrected king, salvation, prophet, and the resurrected man who belongs to God. He is our salvation. Let's pray together. Our Father, uh, we are grateful for any time that we can gather together uh, with brothers and sisters uh, submitting to your word. What we're doing now is not, not ideal and certainly not a part of our plan. But we are so grateful that you gather your people together, that they might hear, submit to, and be transformed by your holy word. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.